0: Thank you for joining us for another Alliant Employee Benefits Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you insights into employee benefits compliance issues. I'm your host, Christine Blanco. I'm the Director of Compliance here at Alliant Employee Benefits, and with me today is Diana Craig. Hi, everybody. She is also an attorney here in our compliance department. And as we move, sort of settle in rather, to 2018 and what is an election season, uh, we can look back on 2017 where we were podcasting as a means of making sure you guys stayed abreast of what, what was happening with repeal and replace and changes. It was really the most nimble medium to bring you those changes as they happened. And now as we're in 2018 and, and healthcare reform has moved to the back burner, at least you know for today, um, we are going to take an approach where... Uh, we bring you these podcasts every month there are always things to talk about in employee benefits compliance and there's always uh, this is always a good medium to kind of run through it informally when we do webinars um, it's fairly it's fairly formal it's not very conversational and that's because it has to be that way and in a podcast Diane and I can really have a conversation and kind of get into some, into the weeds on some practical situations. So we'll be covering not only ACA, we'll be covering HIPAA wellness, sort of whatever we're seeing come up with any consistency. Because as a, you know, as a result of our vantage point and working with so many clients, um, our department will see consistent themes coming up and issues that are coming up. Um, over and over for clients. So um, we're going to plan to do that on, um, I think, the fourth Friday of every month, and we hope you'll join us. So with that, let's turn to today's topic. We're going to talk about IRS assessments. Coming in the way of letter 226J. We first started seeing those when? Late last
1: year? Gosh, I mean, it's, it's been at least six months now, and I feel like we're a little bit overdue in sort of talking about these assessments. Um, and I think we were basically so busy reviewing them, understanding them, responding to them, that we didn't stop and take a breath and talk about them. But now that we've seen enough sort of cycle through the system, it's a great time to talk about
0: them. I agree. It is overdue. So, we are seeing some of these come through and with fairly alarming penalties um we're seeing some come through with negligible
1: penalties i am um, i think i actually went on the most alarming penalty numbers i had one come through uh with an a penalty of 17 million dollars yeah yikes so um what what i find
0: heartening is that um we're not seeing people just completely losing their minds over these and and that's good because that doesn't ever ever help and um, what we are seeing are a couple of common mistakes, and so we want to talk about those. But before we get there, I want to talk about the importance of a basic understanding of payer play and what the underpinnings are, why, you know, there's a different, two different penalties and what they are. Um, you know, that we've been living with ACA a lot. There was a lot to remember. It's easy to forget, you know, how it works mechanically. Um, and also an understanding of how you track. Your data, where it lives, and how easily you can get to it in the event you need to, and you get an assessment. So, do we want to talk through?
1: Do you yeah. want me to talk through
0: part A and part B's.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing when I get a two two six J assessment letter in, the first thing I do is I madly flip through it to what's called the ESRP summary table, and what I'm looking for there is, is it a part A penalty or is it a part B penalty? Because those A penalties can be scary, and Chris mm-hmm. is going to tell you why. Okay. So just going back to um, Pay or Play 101, um, there are two penalties you
0: can you could get under Pay or Play. Subpart A, which is known as sometimes as the no-offer penalty, or we've called it the sledgehammer penalty. But essentially, if you fail to offer coverage to substantially all of your full-time employees and their dependents, you could be subject to a penalty of $2,000, and it's indexed, so it goes up a little every year, times all of your full-time employees' Um, and that's regardless of who you offer coverage. And so it cuts a swath. It, you know it, it can get really expensive really quickly if you um, if you blow that threshold of who substantially all, right Who constitutes what constitutes substantially all of your full-time employees. And that's an important note um, there was transition relief so we are seeing penalties by the way right now or assessments rather for um, calendar year 2015 so we've definitely got some lag there and in 2015 if you recall there was a host of transition relief to kind of ease us into pay or play one of those transition relief options was substantially all being defined as 70 percent of your full-time employees and their dependents From 2016 forward, substantially all means 95%, and that's what was in the statute. But by regulation, they issued the 70% threshold. So in 2017, you were allowed to offer coverage to 70%. And if you did that, you met the threshold. Um, Subpart B penalties are what, what can be called an inadequate offer, an insufficient offer, or a tech hammer penalty, and that's where coverage is either not minimum value, and minimum value is 60% actuarial value. And really, we don't generally see this much on, you know, sort of your standard group health plan, unless you're offering a skinny MAC, which is not minimum value. But if you have sort of a standard group health plan, it will most likely be meeting minimum value standards. You can also run into this penalty if your coverage is unaffordable. That's where we see this more commonly. Your, your coverage is unaffordable if the employee-only premium – or. The employee portion of the employee-only premium exceeds 9.5% of that employee's household income. And if in that situation the employee were to decline your coverage, go to the insurance exchange and get a subsidy, then you would be penalized uh, for that individual only um it's three thousand dollars annually indexed of course but in 2015 it rounded out to about 250 dollars a month and a lot of dominoes had to have to fall really for you to get a subpart b penalty so we don't see those as often and and we don't worry about those as much because you can also enter into that risk knowingly because it makes more sense what we really worry about are these subpart a penalties so um, with that, do we want to talk about some of the common mistakes that we're
1: seeing? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, by and large, the biggest mistake we've seen is on employers completing their 1094-C transmittal form. And there was a very important, um, line, line 23 mm-hmm. on page two of the form where IRS just asks you, hey, did you offer minimum essential coverage this year? Um, They're not even asking, you know, within the margin of error. They're saying, hey, did you offer coverage? And for some reason, a decent number of groups just said no, that they didn't offer any coverage. And we know this is inconsistent with the 1095 filings that went with the 1094. But if you checked no on line 23 and told IRS, hey, we don't offer anybody any coverage, you just got slapped with a rather large Part A penalty.
0: Yeah, and if you remember, if any of you... Were you know had the pleasure of sitting through our webinars on reporting, or listen to any of us talk about reporting? I would often say, or we would often say, you are telling the IRS lots and lots of things about your plan. You are giving them the information they need to determine whether you've complied with pay or play, and and that's really coming home to roost here. So in that line twenty three, you've told them.
1: Yeah, I, I think the um, the funny thing I used to say on webinars would be. If you don't take anything else away from listening to me, to me today, don't check no on line twenty-three. But it's really not anybody's fault. Uh, we saw groups that used vendors. We saw groups that did this in-house. In year one, this was incredibly overwhelming reporting, and so that was a, a common mistake that was made. It was, and and it's a
0: very it was you know low-hanging fruit for the IRS to go. Okay, no, they told us no time to issue a report, and then they just really go by whoever was receiving a subsidy, right? And then counting the full-time employee count. So if somebody received a subsidy, because it just takes one, right? Then they would take a look at your month-by-month full-time employee count and then ping you on that and then subtract because your Part A penalty was, you know, all your full-time employees, right? Minus either 30 or 80. That was another transition relief. So if you checked... A box on line 22 of 1094 C which was you know subpart C of line 22 indicating you were eligible for transition relief you got to carve out your first 80 employees out of however many full-time employees you have so let's say you have hundred full-time employees you checked no I didn't offer coverage the IRS is gonna ping you you have a hundred full-time employees if you check transition relief you got to remove 80 out of that equation now for years after 2015, that goes down to 30, that's what's in the statute, that's what we're dealing with now. But at the time, it was 80, but only if you checked that section, uh h Transition Relief, Line 22, Box C, and we had a whole um, slide in our webinar on oh, what to yeah. do, do with Box 22.
1: I remember that slide, it was what to do with Line 22, and it was uh, an overwhelming slide because there were so many components to what box C line 22 encompassed um that it really did fill the page and then some so again employers um it was a, it was a common mistake it was an understandable mistake not to check box C yeah it,
0: absolutely it was and so that's sort of how that's a common mistake so saying you did not offer uh, minimum essential coverage and what we what we've seen is you know I think all of our clients offer minimum essential coverage to substantially all of their full-time employees. So we would, that's just simply an administrative error. Another, uh, another common mistake was not not checking transition relief, but that either gave you the, the, the break on 80 or 30, and that changed your month-by-month number. Because really what we look at when we look at this letter 226J is this um, ESRP summary table, And it's a table that takes you month by month on whether you offered coverage, how many full-time employees you had, how many they subtract out for determining your penalty and what your monthly penalty is. Yeah, the
1: good news on those kinds of mistakes is that we've actually seen IRS be very responsive um, to the employer's um, correction of those. So that's good news. Uh, the employer has to file its response that requires a written statement. We recommend backing that up with as much evidence as you can and just showing them, no, no, we did offer um, mm-hmm. MEC to substantially all of our full-time employees, Um hopefully at that 70% threshold for 2015, and IRS has, has been amenable. And what happens after IRS receives your response is you can get a version of letter 227 back. So there are five possible responses once you've replied to your 226J, and um, I've only actually seen two versions of letter 227, even mm-hmm. though there are five possible mm-hmm. options. So uh, the ones that have resolved uh, very nicely and neatly, um, you get a letter 226K back from IRS, and it says, hey, we're all good, we're closing your case, uh, no penalties. So those are the ones I really like to get back. The other one that I've seen is letter 227L. And that has revised numbers. Um, it can either be a B penalty assessment or it can be a narrowing of the A penalty. Um, I, I have had a few clients who did for one or two months in 2015 inadvertently blow the margin of error mm-hmm. even at 70%. And yep. so when, when we know we've blown that margin of error and the IRS has said, yeah, it looks like you blew that margin of error. Mm-hmm. We're just basically going and looking to uh, make sure it's only for those months where we really did put a toe over that line. And then the other thing we try and knock out is, like Chris mentioned, you can only get an A penalty if one of your full-time employees got a premium tax credit. So if we can go in and show that employee either shouldn't have gotten the premium tax credit, um, sometimes that can take away the whole A penalty. But remember, just because you're using an affordability safe harbor doesn't mean your employee can't have gotten a premium tax credit. It insulates you from B penalties, but that one employee can still trigger that A penalty for you.
0: Yeah, and we should go back. I don't know that we were clear on this. And it's hard because, you know, this isn't a webinar, so we want to be careful about, um, you know, talking about, you know, the items that are on the... In the letter 226J, but letter 226J gives you a premium tax credit list, which gives you all the names of the employees that received a subsidy and the opportunity to recode their offers of coverage in the event that you have improperly coded them. And so with the understanding that if nobody in your population should have received a subsidy, um, you know, and again, you only have certain amount of visibility into that, you um, it gives you the opportunity to address that and potentially, um, you know, know, deal with those subpart A or subpart B penalties. And so, you know, it'll have the coding that you wrote down for that that employee for the varying months, and it'll it'll allow you the opportunity to recode them. And I've seen that happen a lot. There's a lot of recoding. Oh, no, no, this person definitely had an offer of coverage. I have their waiver. You know, all kinds of, you know, stuff like that happens. And in that case, to Diana's point before, personally in my experience, sort of the more clean information you give the IRS on your you know your eligibility provisions and any waivers, the better off you're going to be.
1: Yeah and that um, brings me to my ridiculously large a penalty that I got in it was either 16 or 17 million. What had happened there was the employer um, on accident, filed 1095-C forms for all of their part-time employees who happened to all be getting premium tax credits. And so resolving that issue was actually as simple as, and I I shouldn't say simple because it was um, hundreds of, pages of the employee premium tax credit listing that had to be corrected, but was going back and proving that none of those employees were actually full-time, and they could completely document that. So by lifting all of that away, there went that Part A penalty.
0: Yeah, and that's it. I mean, that's an important point, and to Diana's point before, there was 2015 reporting was scary and uncertain and rushed and all kinds of things and there were a lot of questions even for those of us who lived and breathed it and one of those you know i did see a lot of people saying well i'm just going to do a 1095 for all of my employees getting coverage because from a system standpoint that was easy or you know tracking was too hard and and you know there was a lot of um a lot of hurdles back then um, administratively and they still exist but um, so we did see a lot of people doing 1095s for part-timers, and that was definitely not something we recommended. And, and, and now you can see why, because, again, this information feels like it's going out into the ether, right? And and But really, there's somebody on the other end, and they're looking and they're calculating. And I think that's one of the things Diana and I were kind of surprised about is that um, I think in the end of the day um, – the IRS has numbers and they're running them behind the scenes and, and they're and they're coming up with them and, and to our point when we talked about reporting in the beginning, they now have a host of information about you and your plan and your employees and they can cross reference that pretty easily.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, it felt overwhelming then and it still feels a little bit overwhelming now. Um you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about really what I think the bigger problems that mm-hmm. that I've seen are and Chris knows I'm very passionate about these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's been bothering me to podcast about this for days. <laughs> and this is where I really want to talk to people about tightening up their procedures because I have had, gosh, two or three groups who got a, a 226J letter with some of these common uh,
0: mistakes. Okay, and sidebar, real quickly it comes via snail mail, people. Not via email, you're not going to get two. You're going to, it's going to be in the pile of mail that comes in with your catalogs, you know?
1: Yeah, so please, please, please do not lose this letter. You've got to open that letter and put it in the hands of somebody really prompt and competent. Mm -hmm. Um, So these groups have gotten a fairly standard 226J letter. Um, They have, you know, timely replied and sent that timely response out to the person indicated on the 226J letter, but it almost feels like it's off to the ether, and then something has gone wrong on IRS's end where they either didn't get the response, um, where, where something just, the, the points do not connect. The person who needed to get the response didn't get it in their hands, and as a result of that, the employer doesn't get its 227 letter. Hopefully that 227K saying case closed, all good. What happens if the IRS never gets that response is um, it just floats out there and you don't know what's happening. You don't get your 227J letter. You don't then have an opportunity to request a pre-assessment conference. After your pre-assessment conference, you have a right to appeal. But when you stop that process when or... do you get instead... Oh, gosh. What you get instead is a CP-220J IRS assessment. And once that assessment is issued, you're you're really hamstrung trying to unwind what went wrong right. and reverse uh, to get back to the point where you have substantive appeal rights. Um, and you got to get your process under control because um, these are not the last of these 226Js we're seeing. We're seeing 2015 226Js. I think we're going to see more from 2015. They're coming for 2016 and they're coming for 2017. So Chris, what are our recommendations to avoid this procedural problem? Well you need to make
0: sure that who's ever coming taking in your mail, right? So that you have highlighted somebody that that individual or that set of that set of people that if something that looks like it's from the IRS comes in, it needs to go directly to the appropriate party. What we like to see happen, our recommendation is that the person, the authorized representative signing your 1094 and 10, 1094 rather, um, is the one who receives that and who would be primary contact with the IRS. If you once you file a response or once you mail your response or send it back, we recommend calling the person on the on the 226J just say hey in the mail. If you don't get it, let me know, or I'm going to check back with you. Um, We've seen some weird things about the IRS not being willing to talk to certain people,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, having been burned by this now a couple of times, I'm really going to recommend the belt and suspender approach. Mm -hmm. I would send Mm -hmm. your response. Um, You know, you can fax it back to them. I would also stick it in the mail with some sort of acknowledgement of receipt or Mm -hmm. something because things often can just disappear in the fax machine ether. So something where receipt is confirmed, I would also recommend following up with the person directly in that 226J letter, um, because again, once this gets away from you, it's really hard to get Mm -hmm. it back. And what uh, Chris was mentioning was, sometimes when you pick up the phone and try and talk to the IRS about the process, I think it's, it's one thing when you're saying, hey, did you get this? They'll probably talk to you. But if you're trying to really address something substantive with them, um, that might actually have to be the person, that authorized representative who signed that 1094-C form, they're, they're probably not going to just talk to anybody at the company who chooses to pick up the phone.
0: That's right. And again, you're reporting sort of coming home to roost. Before we move on from this and the process and procedure and how important that is, Um I want to go back to something related. If you fail to reply, if, you know, the letter makes it to your desk and you look and say, oh, goodness, uh, the date is it's past due, which has happened. We've seen happen and is reasonable given it's a very short time frame. It's 30 days. So if it gets stuck in the mail, it can very easily take that long to get to the appropriate person. Um, we recommend just responding as quickly as possible. You could contact the IRS and you could ask for an extension um, either way, get moving on a response. They really should. If you have access to your data, it shouldn't take that long. And I've seen, um, and you know, and because you really want to get in there before that CP two two twenty J two twenty J comes through. And I've seen it where um, we we file a response, and because the the IRS's process seems fairly automated, so there's like it sounds like there's like clocks ticking that letters just spit out, you know, at certain time, time deadlines. So I've seen a late response. And what's happened is they get an assessment letter and then a quick follow up. Now we have your information. We're taking a look at it. We'll be in touch. And so Um, You know, do it as quickly as possible, try and get an extension, um, but do it quickly before you get thrown into this sort of waiving your appeal rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, that letter 226J, you have 30 days Mm -hmm. to respond, and then once you get your letter 227, you have another 30 days to either request that uh, pre-assessment conference or file an appeal. So these are tight timelines. They are, and I I don't know
0: if Diana mentioned this, but to her point, you know, This could easily automatically go to IRS collections, which is um, a bit of a headache you don't want to have to deal with if at all, if you can, you know, at all help it. So um, I think anything else that we have on on 226J? Oh, yeah. So. I would also take a look at your 2016 filings. Your t- hopefully you just did 2017 filings, and we have this information out to you in a timely fashion. But take a look at that 1094 and your ten ninety fives to make sure that you've checked you've. You know, check that you've offered minimum essential coverage and that there were some still some transition relief available in 2016. So you'll want to verify that. You'll want to verify your coding. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about
1: filing an amended ACA report or? Yeah. I mean, I think just really quickly, I mean, if you saw common mistakes you made in 2015, um, and those were brought to your attention by a 226J letter, and you realize that maybe you made some of those same mistakes in 2016, you might want to amend those filings so you don't have another uh, round of penalty uh, assessments to respond to um, later this year, early next year. So if we can cut that off, I would recommend going ahead and amending those filings Certainly the 1094
0: because I, it's usually you pay by the filing by the and, and so if it's just one form or two forms depending on how many entities you have filing it's worth doing saves you a lot of headaches um, I think ultimately the IRS would appreciate that too so, yeah agreed um, so yeah I think that brings us to the end right anything else on assessments so if you get one take a breath make sure that you contact your you know your advisor whether it's a client or whoever's helping you
1: with that. And, and, you know, assuming everything you'd offered coverage, it it should end up okay. Yeah, most of them have ended up okay. And um, feel free to send them our way because we look at a lot of these and we can kind of translate for you. That's right.
0: Okay, so um, that wraps up this episode of our Compliant with Alliant podcast series. Um, For more information, you can check us out on AlliantBenefits.com. Thanks for your time.